Welcome to Footnotes to a Novel. I'm Travis Holland. Today, an interview with author Donovan Hone. Donovan Hone is the author of The Inner Coast, a collection of essays, and Moby Duck, the true story of 28,800 bath toys lost at sea, a New York Times notable book and runner-up for both the Penn John Kenneth Galbraith Award for Nonfiction and the Penn E.O. Wilson Literary Science Writing Award. His essays have appeared in such publications as Harper's, The New York Times Magazine, The Virginia Quarterly Review, Lapham's Quarterly, and The New Republic. A recipient of the Whiting Writers Award and an NEA Creative Writing Fellowship, Hone spent a number of years editing essays, fiction, and literary journalism at Harper's, and a few years as features editor of GQ. He has taught nonfiction in the MFA program at the University of Michigan and is now on the creative writing faculty of Wayne State University in Detroit. And now, Donovan Hone. Donovan Hone, thank you so much for uh, joining me today. I'm glad to be here, Travis. So uh, you write in your book, The Inner Coast, all coasts are marginal and messy places, which is why people like me are drawn to them, I suppose. And you go on to say, coasts have always been contact zones between here and there. So why are you drawn to the marginal and messy places of the world? What is the inner coast? It's a good question. And, and I'm realizing that there's a way in which I, I don't think I answered it quite directly uh, when I wrote about it. I might, I might have answered it more implicitly. Um, well, I think there's just, just at the most autobiographical level. Um, I grew up in, in the outskirts of San Francisco and was an ocean geek uh, from an early age. Um, and there is something about, uh, you know, we refer to it in, in oceanography as the, as the littoral zone, which is that the margin between, um, the world of the ocean and the terrestrial world where we biped hominids walk around. There's the littoral, littoral zone, which is like, kind of like you have these two realms um, uh, uh, interact and mingle, and that's there. That that area, that the margin between land and water, it, it's extremely biologically productive. Um, this is true even if we go out 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 a little ways and in, in, into the ocean itself. The the boundary where the ocean meets the continental shelf is is hugely biologically productive. So on some level, I'm just thinking about that. They do literally tame those margins. But if you're somebody who's curious um, about uh, about uh, what's out there in the ocean and the the realm at the edge where you can go tide pooling, it really did feel like like this is this is a a place that feels otherworldly, where where I as a air breather can can go look into a tide pool and it's this glimpse. Um, into this into this other world, and I think that that's that that sense of worlds meeting at coasts. I think that's true culturally. Uh, I've been kind of fascinated for um, a long time about 
um, uh, this is this goes back centuries that the uh, the port towns and port cities and harbors tended to be uh, just inherently cosmopolitan. I don't know if you know uh, your your Moby Dick as well as I do because I've taught it a bunch, but but if you read Ishmael's uh, account of there it is, right there on your desk. But if you read Ishmael's account of, of uh, New Bedford, where he meets Queequeg, um, you know, in the middle of, of uh, you know, in antebellum America, here you have like people from all over the globe of every religion um, having to coexist in this one town. And so you, you, get, you get that kind of mingling um, happens in the, uh, among people as well. So that to me is, is it's, I guess that's what I'm thinking about when I say in, in that opening essay that, that they're biologically productive and culturally productive as well. You, you mentioning uh, Moby Dick, a book I love, uh, and Queequeg. You say they mingle not only uh, in the town, but isn't there? There's a scene in Moby Dick where they're literally put in the same bed together at a rooming house. It's a great scene where uh, uh, Ishmael and Queequeg are sort of rooming together. The counterpane is the chapter, which is the name for the for the for the, basically the quilt or the uh, um, the comforter we'd call it now that they lie under. But I I love that chapter too because uh, Melville, there there he plays he plays them for comedy, at Ishmael's expense. Right, he he turns Ishmael into into this kind of. Um, uh, uh, he's a greenhorn sailor, but he's also a greenhorn culturally. So he's afraid of Queequeg. He has all sorts of of, of uh, preconceptions about uh, about what this guy from the South Pacific will be like. He's going to be a heathen, right? So he's yes. he's got he's got this kind of um, uh, Christian priggishness uh, uh, about about his his expectations of Queequeg and Melville knows that he's doing it for fun. And then we, and then he see, he just like dismantles them in the first few encounters uh, between, uh, between you end up with a kind of like strikingly modern cultural relativism by the end of those chapters where he's, he's now suddenly recognizing that, that, uh, that, that Queequeg's religion might also contain truth. I mean, it's so anyway, I love that, um, that chapter, that section. That book is extraordinary, and, and for a book that was written in the 19th century, it 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 is quite postmodern in some ways. Mm-hmm. Um, the I remember reading it and, and being struck by the what is it the chapter cetacean, the cetacean huh. chapter, which is suddenly we veer off into a discussion of the whale, of almost a biological discussion, a short essay on what they knew at the time about whales. Um, and that felt very postmodern to me. And then what felt quite postmodern was this turn that that chapter seems to take at the end when what Melville seems to conclude is that there are things about the whale that we cannot know and will never know that we, we, we start with a, a kind of scientific discussion and then we branch into a metaphysical, it becomes kind of metaphysical in that way. Well, in each one of those informational chapters, oh gosh, we're going to end up having a whole podcast about Moby <laughs> Dick. Um, but each one of those informational 
chapters, that's the turn. Uh, so he'll take the form of what we might think of as, it feels at first like we're reading nonfiction, right? It, here we are uh, getting um, ex, uh, some expository writing about cytology, and he's doing a mock Linnaean classification. Um, though it's delightful even from the beginning because the classification scheme he uses, he borrows from books, Right. So it's like if if we know back from the from the antiquarian publishing, right, books were classified as as folios and quartos. They, and all of that was about the, the size of the book and the size of the pages. And that's he's using books as his as his scheme for whales, which, of course, then is is going to give us that that turn towards we'll, of trying to read the whales as if we're reading books. And we do end up, as we so frequently do in that novel, with a kind of indeterminacy. Like we actually get pushed to the limits of, 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 of what can be known. Yes. Um, and you know so much about Melville, not only because you're, I'm sure you're, you've read him and you're fascinated with him, but you've also taught Melville. Uh, you've taught Moby Dick before, haven't you? I think I've, it's been, um, let's see, I've done it, I think, four times. I've read it probably now six or seven, but I've taught it four. I mean, uh, there's no better way to, to learn a book than to, than to teach it. But yeah. yeah. Um, and, you know, we are talking about the a moment ago about this idea of the marginal and messy places of the world. So, But you're a writer. Uh, you don't seem content to just stand at the coast. Uh, again and again in your book, The Inner Coast, your latest book, The Inner Coast, and in your previous book, Moby Duck, you go out and see, as Melville put it, the watery part of the world. You've crossed the North Pacific, Northwest Pacific on an icebreaker and the Pacific on a container ship during the height of winter storm season and traveled by high-speed ferry through the backwaters of China's Pearl River Delta. So hearing all this, Donovan, it would be natural to imagine you to be a kind of adventurer slash writer, right? And I don't, you know, which would you put more, the adventurer part or the writer part? Knowing you, I'd imagine the writer part. But you've also written quite eloquently about the tension between the side of you that is driven out into the world and the writer who sticks to his desk and wants very much to stay home, who, like Emerson, sees travel as a fool's paradise. Can you talk about the tension between those sides of you, the one, that, yeah. the side that goes out and the side that stays home? That's a big one for me. That tension. I think that I think that I'm constitutionally um, uh, a bit of an introvert, uh, and uh, most of my adventuring uh, for from, for the at least the first few decades of my life um, was of the sort one uh, one did while. Uh, by reading, you know, um, uh, the uh, uh, rather than actually going to see, let's just let's just let's just read Moby Dick. Um, uh, but I think that partly, I, if I think back to it, because like, I had initially, uh, as I as you know, like imagined that I might end up um, uh, writing poetry, and if not poetry, maybe I would be writing. Um, uh, the sorts of essays one can write while while not leaving your desk, uh, and I still do uh, have that impulse and that tendency. Um, the going out into the world, I had this discovery I made um, while writing one of the essays that's in the Inner Coast. Uh, 
it's uh, among the earliest by date of composition, which was an essay about um, uh, an uncle of mine who is a botanist who in midlife had um, developed uh, an obsessive fascination with the uh, material history of of the Midwest, uh, with with the artifacts of agriculture and industry that were kind of had become obsolete and were kind of vanishing, um, certainly from use, possibly from our awareness, possibly from existence, because they were just uh, uh, left to to rust and decompose in foreclosed factories or in old barns, and so he started um, salvaging and collecting all of these 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 tools and instruments and artifacts of of uh, of the of, of the Midwest and and subjecting them to the same kind of of scrutiny and attention. Um, that as a botanist, he'd brought to the study of succulents in the gray dogwood. And he was building this, this, this museum slash repository um, in, uh, in, a, uh, in, a, in his own kind of prefabricated barn out in, um, in, in Dexter, Michigan, where you live. Um, and so I just, when I, when I first visited his collection, um, I found it, totally fascinating like just the amount of material history um the beauty it'd be these old obsolete you know uh, rusty railroad wrenches from that were perhaps 100 years old and they were they were they were exquisitely beautiful and he would array them the way that you might um array uh uh uh, butterfly specimens, you know, like tea pinning them to cork so you could see all the varieties of the particular um, species of butterfly. He would do that with his with his various tools, sorting them into a taxonomy. So they were beautiful and they were fascinating, and I wanted to write about them. Um, and it was really that that particular essay um, where uh, I started accompanying him on these on these these field trips he would make he would go out to to find these things that going to estate auctions um uh farm auctions uh uh, uh, uh factories whatever um and for that piece it felt to me uh, both both um necessary to for the sake of the piece but also i kept on it feeling like i was we were doing something similar to what um, say um, uh, Darwin or um, Joseph Banks, who accompanied Captain Cook, these naturalists from the from the nineteenth century. I mean, this was one of the ways you studied the world was just go out and look at it. Um, I actually started reading Darwin's journals, not not Descent of Man or Origin of Species, but the journals from his um, from his own travels, and and it just it was, there was something again. I found found uh, there was a kind of a, rapture of his descriptive prose um where where he would be like at times like you know out in the middle of the ocean on a ship and and collecting dust just to study to look for for what could we learn by the size of the grains or the colors in the dust right? yeah. and then speculating about where they were coming from what what winds had carried them so that um that kind of a Tension. Um, I've, I've always loved it, both in in, in literary nonfiction 
or in, in the natural sciences. Um, and so I imagine that the, that, that essay, um, it's called Romance of Rest, where I traveled mm-hmm. with my tool-collecting tool uncle, that it would be a kind of journey, even though, but part of what I liked about it was, was that it would kind of turn inside out the old uh, age of, of exploration and, and colonialism notion that to learn the world, we travel to someplace far away. In that essay, and I think really in most of my work, it's like let's do that. Let's 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 travel to to here in the Midwest, but also you know what can we discover in, in uh, without pursuing the far away? Like how can we see this world in ways we haven't seen it before? And yet, um, and yet, being a person who who is uh, being a writer who is able to see see the sort of depths that you see in that uh, particular essay. Uh, you're also the writer who finds himself at a certain point on an icebreaker or on the deck. As you write in uh, Moby Duck, I mean, you're on the deck of a ship at night in winter, a slippery deck, uh, 12 foot seas, 30 mile an hour, 30 uh, knot gusts of wind, yeah. You also find yourself there too at times. That must be kind of an extraordinary moment, particularly for a writer who, as you just described yourself, is a, you're kind of an introvert. You're a, an intellectual or you're a, someone who likes to read your books and think about these things from your desk. And then to right. find yourself uh, in the middle of the Pacific Ocean at night, that must be quite extraordinary. Yeah. And, you know, that was for, for Moby Duck, in some ways, that was the whole conceit of the book. Uh, it's there in my bad pun of a title. Um, uh, the, it was, was, was I, you know, I, uh, I imagined myself, I was at that point uh, in, in my early 30s, um, uh, that I felt like I was, uh, uh, if, if you know your Moby Dick, Ishmael, when he goes to see, used to be a school teacher right so there's part of the whole fun is how ill-suited he is to to the life aboard the Pequod right he's he he himself is 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 um uh is is more suited to to study or the classroom and there's a great amount of humor in that I mean part of the whole humor of Moby Dick is that is that you've got this figure Ishmael who's going to think metaphysically about whales while of course everyone else in that ship is just there to earn a living Right. Yeah. Um, that's just so. So with Moby Duck, I I really um, once I, I I I thought about that book is in conversation with Melville, but I I felt like it's not a performance. It's totally genuine and sincere. But I am not an adventuresome person. In fact, if anything, and I write about this at various moments. If anything, I'm a, I'm a bit fearful and neurotic and phobic. Uh, you know, that's been true since I was a kid. Um, uh, you know, the ocean, which fascinates me, uh, also terrifies me. I used to uh, never be able to go swimming in it because I saw Jaws at a at a at an impressionable age. So so for me that. that that was the degree to which, like, I am a character in the story of that book. That's that's what I'm there for, um, uh, as an as an unlikely and perhaps inept adventurer. Um, uh, but I did I did also I think there was a sense when I read when I read Moby Dick, um, I I feel that that's there. There's a kind of book 
that I just, I, this is not uh, meant to slight uh, uh, you or other novelists who depend so much on the power of the imagination. Yeah, I don't think, I, I don't think as a novelist, you do need to go out and, and actually go whaling to write about whaling. I'm sure there are novelists who could do it without actually having done it. But when I read, when I read that novel in particular, um, I think my favorite chapter is the Grand Armada. I feel like, like you feel, you feel in the rhythm of the prose even that, that, that the, he's almost um, channeling um, the, the, the physical embodied firsthand experience of having gone whaling. I feel that's there. Um, I feel it's there on like every page, um, you know, in there in the way there's a chapter, the masthead where he's just writing about, um, when you're in these tropical seas, uh, on a calm, sunny day and, and the sway of the ship can induce this reverie. Like the prose feels like it's creating that same cadence of, of the waves and the ship. So, um, uh, having been teaching and reading that book, I, I, I felt this, I, I, I definitely blame Melville for most of my um, nonfiction career because I wanted, I really wanted to actually experience firsthand um, uh, in, in my case, the ocean, which has been a, a long um, object of fascination for me. And so you say that uh, you're someone who goes out into the ocean and you have something of a trepidation of fear of, Swimming in the ocean, I, I hear that. I, I can identify with that. Um, I too saw Jaws uh, when I was a kid, and it wrecked me. And I lived, uh, I lived uh, near an ocean, and at that point wouldn't go in, but was always fascinated with people who would. And um, I remember interviewing a fellow, uh, a gentleman named Ted Erickson, who is one of the great open water swimmers. Uh, he actually swam from the Farallon Islands to Golden Gate Bridge. Uh, he's one of, I believe, two people at the time I spoke to him who had ever done that. And um, I went out to San Francisco and actually did a little swimming around in the bay, terrified, absolutely terrified, uh, not to mention freezing, and then went out on a boat to the Farallon Islands uh, and it takes quite a while to, while to get out there. Yep. And it's this desolate rock out in the middle of nowhere. Uh, reeks, you can, the, the sh wind from shore carries the reek of the sea lions uh, that are on shore. And you can actually hear them barking. And then beneath us, 16, 17 foot great white sharks were gliding. It was, uh, you could actually, we actually saw them at one point. And to think that a person, and not only did he get in the water, but he got in the water at like two o'clock in the morning to start swimming at night, to start your swim back towards shore. There's something fascinating about, um, I'm fascinated by water as, as you are, uh, and yet uh, have no desire to go swimming in the middle of the ocean at night. Did you, did you go overboard by the Fairlands? Cause that's, those are I did. I did not. No, yeah. I was content to stay on this, especially when I saw a shark, uh, pass under the boat. No desire whatsoever. The, I mean, the, um, uh, those are famously sharkish waters. So oh, lots of, lots the red of triangle. Yes. Right. Yeah. The, I mean, for me, I did, um, 
I did, I did go, uh, there was a swim call on one of my, when I was traveling with an oceanographer who studies uh, plastic pollution on a camera, catamaran off Hawaii, he did do a swim call. And I made myself, I made myself, I felt like, if only so I can write about it, I gotta, I gotta jump off the, into this ocean for a little bit. And I still remember just looking down the water off Hawaii it was, it was extremely deep, extremely blue. And I think I felt a kind of vertigo because you, if you just look down, it feels like you're swimming at the top of the sky. Um, so I, 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 uh, I, yeah, I, for a guy like, uh, is it Erickson was his name? Ted Erickson. Yeah. Yeah. It'd be, I, he's fascinating to me and he'd be fun to write about. I don't, I can't imagine ever doing it. I did. I did make myself for this book, dive to the bottom of lake michigan yes um, but partly because there are no sharks in lake yeah you, you you mentioned that too <laughs> wonderfully shark free um <laughs> but but that i think is the last time i'm going to do something like that i'm, I'm middle-aged with dependence so my new rule is is i can't do anything that uh, a life insurance company would ask you to declare on a on an insurance application so that 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 means no skydiving and no scuba diving and uh I'm trying to figure out ways to do this that 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 doesn't require um, actual adventure. Doesn't I'm not saying doesn't require um, travel, or certainly certainly for me, uh, there's there's I do think there's great va- value. I believe in the kind of methodologies that that I'm using and that many of the nonfiction writers I'm, I most admire use. I think there's there's huge value in leaving your desk. Um, uh, or your study or your library and going out to see, uh, observe, listen, uh, I believe uh, ardently in the value of, of learning from other human beings. Um, so I want to keep doing that, but maybe maybe not uh, something that's quite as, as actuarially uh, risky. Yeah, because the dangers are real. Uh, you write in the inner coast and I hope it's all right. If I bring this up, you write a a moving tribute to the journalist, Matthew power, who was both a colleague and a friend and who died while walking the length of the Nile in 2014. He was only 39 years old. Um, did his death make you question your willingness to go out into the world as a writer? Donovan. Not in the sense of, of going out and, uh, one can still go tide pooling, <laughs> yeah. you know, um, uh, 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 and uh, one can still conduct interviews. And I'm, st- I'm not that hasn't changed. But but there was something chastening about his death because not only he, was he one of my oldest and dearest friends, there's a sense in which I'm not sure I ever would have have had the nerve to travel the Northwest Passage, say. Um, had it not been for his example, um, because Matt, Matt, um, oh, he's, he was, uh, um, when I met him, he was this, uh, he's, he has an essay called Holy Soul. It's about Allen Ginsberg, but I think he was kind of one himself. He was this immensely sensitive, funny, uh, uh, curious, uh, warm, uh, open. He had an open, 
openness to him, to, in openness and, uh, and the, a kind of just infectious curiosity about the world. Um, uh, he writes about that, that at the core of existence um, uh, is, is transience and sorrow, and you felt that sorrow there, but he also had a capacity for joy. Um, and and he long before I ever imagined doing anything of the sort. He had he he very much uh, in the kind of tradition of of um, of a Bruce Chatwin or a or a Rebecca Solnit, or, or where he would be willing to to just um, do things like uh, join a kind of a steampunk uh, um, anarchist who was going to try to descend the Mississippi River on a homemade raft with which was also a crazy thing to do and could have easily resulted in drowning. And Matt would just go on these things. So, you know, he, he, he was, he was kind of the, uh, uh, gave me the nerve to do it. And he even gave me like tips about how to do it, which voice recorder to buy or, or the like. Um, uh, and so when he died, uh, of heat stroke at 39, so unexpectedly, um, uh, I mean, frankly, in, in that essay that's in this new book, I, I, I include this this packing list he gave me for when I was going to be traveling to the Bering Strait, and it ends with with the, the his last piece of advice is to stay hydrated. And so I knew he wasn't. I knew he was smart about these things. I knew he didn't. He 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 knew how to do it safely. Um, he wasn't heedless or reckless, and yet somehow. Um, uh, dis- despite his prudence, he ended up um, uh, uh, it's somewhat mysteriously, it, uh, but it seems to be dehydration and heat stroke that got him at 39. And that was that was that's part of why I say that having 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 uh, gone diving to the bottom of Lake Michigan, which was an amazing experience, I think I'm done with uh, with with that sort of thing. Um, and I've had to try to rethink about about about. Um, in fact, I feel like I'm. I'm 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 interested now in looking at at ways of 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 doing of, of doing the kind of nonfiction I've done, but without without that um, uh, without the travel or the or the or the adventure. And it seems too that um, the 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 writers, uh, not only writers but the artists who go out into the world, photographers uh, go out and. Um, the one of the dangers of going out into the world, looking, uh, having adventures, combining the adventuring with the writing, is that uh, one might be tempted to always outdo oneself. Yes, and we live in a time where people have literally died chasing after a picture for their social media. Right, that's true. You know, um, so it, it's think, a. It, I think it. Yeah. Please, well, and there can be well no I just know that there are I have I because I have uh, I've spent a number of years as an editor and I've worked with a lot of, of literary journalists and I think for some there's a risk of there's a you can become a kind of an adrenaline junkie um, uh, so I, since I know we're, we're this is a podcast where we're thinking about history in particular uh, there was actually you and I have a shared interest in the fiction writer Isaac Babel. Yes. As this is, this is another example of where I've, of where I've um, 
uh, that, that you'll see how this relates to it, to to your question. Uh, I was going to write my my second book was going to be a book about Isaac Babel, um, and I was going to travel in his footsteps, um, the footsteps of his short stories, not novel, um, through the the territory that he'd wandered um, during the Russo-Polish War of 1920. Um, I had a, a, a book proposal that I'm still um, kind of in love with, and publishers excited about it. Um, um, and here, I think, was uh, I, there were, I encountered two different kinds of limitations um, uh, that made it impossible for me to do the book I dreamed of doing as a work of nonfiction. I actually think it might, there's certain, this is something I've thought more and more about, that there are certain kinds of nonfiction projects that are, that are kind of, that almost would need to be novels in order to exist in the world. Um, but for that project, uh, I was preparing to head off to um, Ukraine in the uh, in the spring of 2013. And I was going to start in Odessa, find a translator and fixer, and, and try to travel up through the Ukraine with uh, Babel's diary as my guide. And you may remember the summer of 2013, which is when Russia was uh, uh, invading Ukraine. And... Um, and, you know, as a 40-something with dependents, I don't do war zones. I have friends who do that, and I just, um, I just felt I couldn't. But that was one of the limitations. Um, and then the other one that I hit was, the, um, uh, was astonished to discover the dearth of archival sources about that weird war, the 1920 Russo-Polish War. Uh, talking to historians discovered that there's, there's almost nothing that we have available um, in any language to to document and recreate um, the events of that summer. Um, there were many of the soldiers who fought in that war were illiterate. Uh, the, the Soviets um, went down in a surprise defeat, the miracle on the Vistula, Poles won. So there was a certain amount of... Um, uh, I think maybe historical shame involved certainly went against the rhetoric of 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 uh, the revolution and um, and so there's besides Bobble's amazing short stories and diary there's not a whole lot else to draw from yeah. um, so so for me, the joy is always in I find when I do the research that it's always better than I could ever have imagined like this is part of the reason why i I love doing nonfiction in particular, I used to write fiction as well. I just, when I go out and I meet these people, whether it's your guy, Erickson, um, or the people I've, I've met on my various travels, they're, they're just always more interesting than I think I would have come up. So it's, I'm saying this is a, I think all of us as writers, we often, um, uh, our strengths at times are compensations for our weaknesses, right? So for me, I, like, I, 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 I've, gotten skilled with the methods of nonfiction and can do that and love it as a form. Um, but partly it's, it's, it's um, because I love what we can find in documents. You can get like, you can find like accidental eloquence. There's like found poetry when you go into the archives there, that for me is what I'm always kind of looking for. Um, but without those documents, without voices of, of people who've remembered something or the documents that speak to it, um, uh, I, then I, then I'm, I'm at a loss. Certainly there's no way to get through fact checking. Yeah. And 
correct me if I'm wrong, wasn't it Gorky who told uh, Bobble to go out there, young man? <laughs> right? Bobble was writing, was in, uh, he was in uh, Petrograd, St. Petersburg, uh, yes. and met Gorky and said, yeah, you're a pretty good kid. Now go out there and and find something real to write about, wasn't it? I think I think I can almost do the quote. So I'll do at least I'll attempt to paraphrase, which was who says, um, uh, uh, "You are a dear dreamer, good at making stuff up, but you don't know very much. So you <laughs> so you must go out into the world and walk barefoot over nails, and the nails should be of the larger sort." That's 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 Gorky's advice to Bobble. And see, it's, it's interesting. I said that Melville was kind of one of the reasons, one of the writers who led me to nonfiction. There are many others, um, Rachel Carson, uh, Thoreau, who led me to nonfiction. But but Isaac Bobble was also among them. Uh, yeah, because I, I loved him in my early twenties, and I, I still love I love the childhood stories and the Red Cavalry stories. And I think I also, even though he was a Jewish kid in Odessa at the beginning of the twentieth century, I think I often identified with his persona because he he puts himself he has a version of himself. Um, you know uh, what is was the famous line of of um, uh, autumn in your heart and spectacles on your nose, right? Yes. Um, and he too is not very good at being a war correspondent. He's not naturally adventuresome, right? He has to repeatedly uh, kind of initiate himself into the brutalities of war in ways that come as a shock. So I identified with him, uh, and I think I may have had that that advice from Gorky, which is probably bad advice or at least unnecessary for all writers i'm not that much you can hear there's a certain kind of a christian self-sacrificial heroism and needing to walk barefoot over nails for the sake of your art i don't know that it's necessary um, that's right i mean i mean proust managed to do something without leaving his bedroom so so at any event but i but i did have that that uh, idea of of being like bobble um, of needing to go out and learn what the world is actually like. And I do think it's true that most of us don't know very much. I'm always astonished, no matter how much one researches, just the magnitude of one's own ignorance is kind of bottomless. It is extraordinary. And, and yet, uh, having gone out into the world again and again, as you've done, you realize, too, that you don't necessarily all uh, have to run out into the world is you know the 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 self the the person we were who might have heard gorky say go out there you don't know squat kid right. get out there and go after it after a number of years of going out there and getting after it you realize as you're saying you don't necessarily have to go out there you don't have to swim in the ocean to know that it's going to be cold <laughs> it's true enough um uh although and and you know it's interesting uh baba was really wrecked by his experience in uh the russo-polish war i mean you've written you've read his uh his diary uh the conflict that he had between during the day he'd be writing agitprop and at night mm -hmm. he would be writing in his diary saying what the hell is happening what am i doing uh and i believe after he you know, came out and wrote those stories, he had to kind of go into a kind of recovery for a little bit. He was a bit of a wreck. 
No, I think that's right. And I think, uh, you know, you can see disillusionments on every page of that novel. Um, they're often done kind of implicitly or ironically rather than overtly. But there's, there's I think, a, a disillusionment with the, um, I, think, I, think, I think you can see him lose faith in, in the Soviet project in the pages of that book. And if, you're a, if you've lost the faith in, in 1920, um, and you're headed towards um, Stalinism, uh, it's going to be hard to be a writer, which of course is part of the, what makes the story of his career feel somewhat tragic. Certainly. Uh, so Donovan, you've been an editor at GQ and Harper's, a high school English teacher. You're a, uh, now a writing professor, as well as a, an author. Uh, what has each of these roles taught you? And have, has they, have they influenced your work? as a writer in any way. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, all of them. Um, uh, curiously, I think that, that I was, um, I taught high school English for three and a half years. Um, uh, right. Beginning of my late twenties, um, uh, into my early thirties. And oddly of all those jobs, um, I had been an editor at Harper's where I learned an enormous amount. So the time I was at Harper's um, beginning from an internship and when I was a junior editor, that was my journalism school. Um, so it was just as far as learning how to uh, talk to strangers, um, learning how to um, uh, trace down facts and archives, all of, all of those just those, those methods were ones I acquired there. Uh, I don't know that I would have uh, uh, been able to do nonfiction without that, that training and that education. Uh, but then when I started teaching high school English, the, uh, they needed me to teach a second semester 12th grade elective. And you know what, what second semester 12th graders are like. Um, there are, uh, they, and so they decided that, well, so I ended up teaching a, a creative nonfiction literary journalism course. It was the first one I ever taught. Um, and designing that course, um, there was a way in which it became, I was, I was figuring out how I would teach it to 17-year-olds. I was also figuring out um, the kind of not what I wanted to be doing myself, so it, it was like I was like like kind of like taking apart nonfiction. How it, how does it work? How does it go together? What's the sequence of skills one would need to acquire in order before you do? You know, maybe you're lucky and at 21 you're Joan Didion or James Baldwin and you're a natural. Great, lucky you. But if not, if you're learning this, like what do you need to do? Um, and um, and so I had developed all of these, like, like, how do you conduct an interview and, and, and moving from interview to portraiture. And I'm sort of thinking like about like the art of nonfiction portraiture. So, um, there are many examples that I love. Um, uh, and then going from the simple portrait to a portrait that also has narrative. So we're doing scenes built into it. And now can you go to, a structure that's even more complicated where we have multiple primary characters who are interacting with scenes. You know, what are the available structures? Journey structures are one, but there are lots of other ones. Um, and it was, so it was, it was in preparing that course that I was, I did my own kind of intensive study of this as a form of writing. Um, and in a way I kind of feel like that's where I began to figure out what I was going to be doing as a writer. 
Well, as a writer who uh, at times you do venture out into the world, um, what's it been like being unable to do just that during the pandemic this past year? There's a there's a there's an irony for me in that um, in that I had upon after finishing this collection of essays, um, and I didn't travel as as much um, uh, in the last. Ten years as I did for the for the first book, but I I descended the Mississippi the last two hundred and fifty miles of the Mississippi River by canoe. I uh, dove to the bottom of Lake Michigan. I traveled the Chicago Sanitary and Shipping Canal in a John boat. I actually decided to myself I I, I want my next book project to um, I want to be able to travel through time but not space. This is, I want to. I want to find a project where I can. It doesn't require uh, uh, danger, but but even just the time away from my kids, who are, it feels like they're only going to be around uh, for before college for another several years. Um, so I'd been thinking about sedentary nonfiction projects before the pandemic began, uh, and I am working on one. But it's. Um, even that it's been a constraint because um, because I've I've been wanting to uh, uh, even with um, uh, doing writing a book that can be written while sheltering in, in place in theory I want to go learn from people so I had I had had a bunch of research trips planned of of uh, you know places I needed to visit to speak to such and such person in order in order to learn something this this for me it's like whenever I begin a nonfiction. Um, project. I think you may have said this in an earlier podcast, but it's something I've said myself is I feel like I have to get a master's degree in the field that I'm, that I'm studying in order to have the authority to write about it. Uh, and there are limitations um, if, uh, to how much you can do just, just from home. I, there's even simple things, Travis, like um, I am a heavy user of research libraries in my nonfiction. Um, uh, I'm, I'm extremely slow, which is why I've never been able to like be a. There are people who write for magazines who who can do a piece in three weeks. I've always take months to do a single piece, and um, and uh, and so I, I I'll spend I'll go f- swimming in libraries, as Madel said, um, and we can't. Uh, you know, we get these we have these approximations that you can do. Uh, if you're trying to do research, I see this, frankly, with students at, at, uh, who are doing PhDs are in a similar predicament. There's a for all the digitization di- digitization that's now happened at libraries, as, as we've got half a trust in Google Books. It's no substitute I, for me. I, there, I, there are books that really only exist in libraries, um, many of which have not been scanned. But there's also this. I, I love the kind of serendipity that happens when you when you go into a collection and and you start exploring what's in a particular section of a, a shelf, or you go into archives and they bring out. I do like to go to archives where they bring out. The, you know the boxes and give you the cotton gloves and you just are seeing these artifacts and these documents you can't do that um so so i'm it's I've, i have been struggling with it um i'm trying to i'm not the kind of nonfiction writer i've been almost wishing i could become one who's who can draw purely from memory uh, purely from from uh, experiences already accumulated for me um, uh, I, I almost, I, I need, I need my mind to interact 
with materials or with other people or other voices. Um, so, uh, but yeah, it's uh, compared to all the other problems people are facing the pandemic, perhaps a small one. Um, but but I do ha I have been thinking that maybe maybe at this moment there's a uh, there's a there's an advantage for if you're if you're uh, uh, the kind of fiction writer who can can just do uh, uh, you know propel yourself on the fuel of your own imagination. Maybe that's maybe there's an advantage right now. I don't know. Well, I hope we all get to a place where we can go out and uh, go to those archives again and uh, look at the sources. And as a reader, I, I definitely want you to be out there again safely. But I, I, uh, I, so I hope that you get, we all get back out there again soon, safely. And Donovan, I, I really want to thank you for your time today. It's, it's been great talking to you. Oh, it's a, it's an enormous pleasure, Travis. Um, yeah. Uh, thanks for having me on. My thanks to Donovan Hone. It was wonderful getting a chance to talk to him. I hope you'll check out his work. And my thanks to you listening out there. I'm Travis Holland, and you've been listening to Footnotes to a Novel. Until next time, take care. Thank you.